0: I want to welcome you all again. If it is your first time to One Church, welcome again. My name is Andy. I'd love to meet you in person. Can we welcome those who are watching online one time in the house? Welcome, welcome, welcome with us in spirit, whether you're watching from Washington or Ohio or wherever you're at, we just want to say welcome. This morning, I'm so glad to be back. I've been gone the last two weeks. Last week, I had the flu. Boo, that was not fun. So uh, take your vitamins. I'm good. It's been a week. No worries. All right. And the week prior to that, I was traveling. You may have seen the video that played up on the screen a couple of weeks ago. That I was actually in Salt Lake City, Utah. Why in the world would I be there? Well, when I got called to ministry, you all, um, funny story, I never wanted to be a youth pastor, and I never wanted to be a lead pastor. So the Lord's like, all right, well, I don't really know what else to, to send you into because that's your calling. So I was a youth pastor, and I knew actually when Leanne's and I were dating, wherever my wife is at, that I I never wanted to uh, do something like a traditional pastor, but I wanted to do something outside the box. I felt called to culture and sports and fashion and music. And I was like, God, I don't know how I'm going to be a lead pastor. And that all connects. And for a while, to be honest, you know, even my love for basketball, man, I was ashamed of it. I was ashamed. Like, oh, I'm the sports guy. I'm the Nike evangelist guy. That's how some people started pegging me. Oh, Andy's the Nike evangelist dude. It's like, no, no, no. Like, as funny as that is, like, I had to take a step back. And I had to realize, God, you wired me this way on purpose. That you actually put these gifts and these talents and these abilities. I mean, I don't have to be ashamed of it. That you have actually called me into this lane, into this kind of sports music lane. And, and I've just learned over the last couple of years, God is still teaching me that, Andy, just embrace it. And so that's what I've been doing. So last week or two weeks ago, I was in Salt Lake City, Utah. I was at the NBA All-Star Game. Now, for some of you, that's like, Man, what the heck? I want to go to the All-Star game, right? But uh, God sent me on a mission. I just want to pause right here. This is crazy, you all. I can never take credit for this, but I don't know if you've seen the commercials recently, the He Gets Us commercials. Anybody see the Jesus commercials in the Super Bowl? If we go back to this last picture here for a second, the guy on the left, you know, there's a lot of controversy about this campaign. You Google it, you're going to find a lot of controversy. Can I tell you, I hung out with the people who are leading this campaign in that weekend. And this dude on the left, I have nothing but good things to say about them. This is Jason on my left. This is Taylor on my right. And God sent me on a mission to go volunteer alongside. He gets us to form partnerships and relationships with NBA players, coaches, and chaplains. And it sounds like I'm probably making it up, but this is a God story that I could never take credit for. And so here I am. I find myself sitting next to these guys. And they just put out a Super Bowl commercial to put Jesus in the center of what America worships, football. And instead of us waiting for them to come to our churches, they're saying, let's go to them. And let's not go to them with a sign that says, God hates everybody. But let's go with compassion. Let's go asking questions. Let's go represent Jesus in a fresh way to a world that's looking for truth. And as you look throughout the statistics, people are looking, they're Googling for churches They want answers. They want to know, is there absolute truth? And if somebody in the house believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life for such a time as this, man, let's give the Lord a shout of praise. We know the truth. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the king of all all kings. And so I'm there, you all. And I'm interacting with Hall of Fame NBA players. I'm, I'm interacting with NBA chaplains. And the Lord is not only pursuing those who are forgotten, he's also pursuing the famous. And sometimes we peg famous and celebrity people like, oh, well, they, they've got it all together. Can I tell you when I hung around them. They're desperate. Their families are broken. Their marriages are broken. The amount of divorces in the NBA, I mean, they need Jesus just as much as you and I do. And so I'm sitting next to these people saying, God, wh- how can I serve them? I got to be literally the, the spiritual shepherd of their team for that weekend just to encourage them. You all, over a billion views of He Gets Us is going viral around the world right now. And seekers, people who have been hurt by the church, D-church, Unchurch, they're asking questions. I love what they're doing. The next picture right here is me. And on the left up there, that is Darren. He is an NFL chaplain. And this is Barbara. These are Tony Dungy's right and left hand people and servants. People that are going into the deep, dark places of our culture to say, let's represent Jesus right in the middle of all of this, unashamed, unapologetic. And that's what he gets us is about. If you have not seen anything that they're doing, watch this video real quick. Hate is loud. It uses all its
1: breath and then some to shout its selfish causes and to spew its vile venom obsessed with division and distress. With its gain and its success at another one's expense hate is loud but love is louder It is patient, it is kind It is gentle but it is strong. But it's a different kind of sound. It doesn't shout or raise its voice It's love's whisper that is loud A whisper like a song or like the rushing of the wind. It reverberates and resonates. It amplifies within. Love is louder.
0: Isn't that beautiful. We can clap for that. That's what they're doing. And when I was there, my first assignment, I know it sounds hilarious, probably sounds impossible, but our first assignment when we got there was to serve Mark Jackson. He was the uh, the representative for he gets us for that weekend, at All-Star weekend. And I want to show you a clip, a, cli- uh, a short clip of his testimony at All-Star weekend. Watch this.
1: Why? Refreshing and powerful for me as a as a believer to watch mm. as my whole life you watch the commercials during the Super Bowl because that's the whole build up and we know how much is paid for sponsorship and to do the ads for those commercials. See a commercial that I can identify with and that was done in pure brilliance uh, and in love mm. in a society where today we're challenged and we judge and we. Say who belongs in heaven and who's a believer and who's not. It was refreshing to keep it as simple as it possibly can be. He gets us.
0: So it's amazing to see people that have influenced. Our mission was to go to the influencers and influence them. Because if just one of them catches fire, the amount of impact that happens, you know, in the world of sports, media, fashion. And so I stand here just to testify to God's goodness And I also say, however God has wired you, don't be ashamed of that. You're into painting. You feel like you're an artist. You're into sports. You don't have to apologize about any of that. Step into that and bring Jesus right into the center of that. Can I get an amen? Amen. God is on the move in our country. Let's give him a shout of praise, what he's doing all across the board. And so I know for a lot of us, for me, it's not fandom. It's calling. I'm called to this land. I'm called to lead this church, and I'm so excited to see what God has prepared for the coming months. And this morning, we are starting a brand new series called Unleashed. Somebody say Unleashed. Unleashed. And the mission and the vision at One Church, when He called Leanne's and I to plant, was not to build the lowercase kingdom of One Church, but to build the capital K kingdom of God. That we're not here to, to, to make our brand and our name famous and all that, we're here to multiply. Somebody say, no, multiply this morning. Multiply, come on. We, we don't want to just add people into the kingdom. We want to multiply and coach and empower. And so this morning, Micah Davis is preaching this morning. He's a good friend of mine from, actually, we knew each other, Indiana, Westland. And before that, let's just put up this picture, Jeremy. This is, okay, here we go. Micah is number one with, shout out to the Jordan headband. Man, you just had us looking. We were not on your level, bro. And this is me, number 15. I look, um, I don't even know. I got a little middle part, Dwight Schrute going on there. But uh, we played basketball together growing up in third grade. We went to college together. And when we planted one church at the grand opening here, January 23rd, 2022, uh, Micah and Riley, his wife, they, they walked up and something in my spirit was just like, man, they're about to plant. Like, I just kind of knew in my spirit God was raising them up for such a time as this. But they are actually doing a really beautiful church plant on the northwest side of Indianapolis. It's called the Sanctuary. And I cannot wait. I mean, Micah's going to share more about that vision. But we are financially investing in them. We are relationally and spiritually investing in them just to say, hey, we're here to serve you all. They have some of their team here, and they're actually co-planting. There's a picture of the co-planters. So Micah and Jake and Riley and Katie, they are co-planting. They even have some of their launch team here this morning. So if you're a part of the sanctuary, would you just come up on the stage one time? Give it up for the sanctuary, somebody in the house. Man, for such a time as this. Maybe some of you go on this side and then, yeah, I'll just hang out here in the middle. Come on, bro, come on. And uh, man, they're in this beautiful phase where they're planting in September, right? Crazy. And so I just wanna be the old school church. Would you just stretch out your hands right now? They're gonna be planting on the Northwest side of Indy in September. We just wanna partner with them in prayer. So let's just pray over them right now, God. We just thank you for Micah, for Riley, for Jake, for Katie, for their whole team, Lord. Father, we know that the spiritual battle is real, but we know that greater is he in us than he who is in this world. That you've given us power and authority to trample over demons and snakes and scorpions, that we are said to be, in Romans 8, more than conquerors. And so, Lord, I pray that the power and the anointing of your Holy Spirit would rest upon their team, that there would be unity, that you would protect them from every evil attack. No weapon formed against them shall prosper. In Jesus' name, Lord. But they will rise up victorious, bold, and unashamed for such a time as this in Indianapolis, in their neighborhood. God, would you add to their number? Would you grow them in width and in depth, Lord? And would you do what only you could do, that only you could take credit for, Lord? Pour out your spirit upon the sanctuary. And may they be the body in and outside the walls of the church. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen and amen team you can go ahead and have a seat would you give it up for them one more time though we are here to support them and love on them Micah is here to bring a word and I mean this y'all as they're leaving today as you're interacting with them on social media man I'd even say this morning find Micah after the service as you're praying about what to give financially too man track one of them down you can give to them as well and just be an encouragement to them Man, maybe you're going to send them a DM three months from now on Instagram. Just say, hey, I'm praying for you. We are here to serve and support them. Amen? Amen Amen and amen. Hey, Micah's got a great word this morning. Go for it, my brother.
2: Thanks, brother. Good morning. 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 Uh, What a joy it is to be with all of you. We are so grateful on behalf of the sanctuary for one church. And um, we just feel so at home. We feel so welcomed this morning. Um, It is just such a joy to be with all of you. Andy, third grade, man, it's a long, long time. Whew. The Westfield Hawks—that was our team name, yeah. And uh, man, you know, those uh, those practices, those were those practices were full of a lot of passing, because Andy did a lot of shooting. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, not really, I'm not. Um, Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Our teaching text is going to come from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, which I'm going to read now in its entirety, and then we'll jump into the teaching this morning. Sound good? All right. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. Which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this.
1: And he told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God,
2: I'm so grateful for this opportunity that we have To partner together as one body, as one community, as one church, at one church. What a beautiful, beautiful picture this is. And I'm so grateful for this community of believers who believe in expanding your kingdom. And Jesus, we are asking, we are praying in unison, in an agreement with you. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray that today, whatever it is that we need to receive to live that vision out, Jesus, would you soften our hearts? Would you open us up to your word, your truth? And may we leave here changed and transformed to go out into our community, to be the hands and feet of you, to be your body, your Soma, your people.
1: Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. It's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.
2: A decade ago, the Italian economy was rocked by a recession, sending the Italian Catholic Church into a devastating spiral. The fix? Reconstruction. But not of the spiritual kind, rather of a material kind. Churches all over began selling off real estate to businesses who could revitalize and resurrect the now desolate spaces. And these churches, once filled with thriving congregations, now sat empty, empty. Awaiting its highest bidder to transform it from a sacred
1: sanctuary to a, well, to a secular court system, or to a sports bar, or to a museum, or to a bank, or to a library, or even a pizza place, and not far behind where America's most secular cities
2: Later in 2014, Catholic parishes all over New York City began to close unexpectedly. Attendance had dropped, expenses had rose, and institutional strength was no longer enough to keep churches afloat. And amidst gasps and tears, long-time faithful congregants soon found out that their church was no more. And now, in 2023, in the politically conservative, evangelical-heavy, economically stable crossroads of America... The same trends are beginning to make waves in our city and in our
1: communities. A disruption has come, and the church as we know it is dying.
2: If you don't believe me, just Google it. All of of the statistics back this up. A groundbreaking 2020 Barna Group study paints a grim picture of reality for where the church in America finds herself today. Consider this. Just one in four Americans, 25%, considers themselves a, quote, practicing Christian. Practicing Christian being defined by an individual who agrees strongly that faith is very important in their lives and that they have attended church at least once in the past month. Down from 45% in the year 2000. Or how about this, those who consider themselves atheist, agnostic, or religiously unaffiliated has nearly doubled over the last 20 years. Weekly church attendance has dropped dramatically since 2009, when 48% of Americans identified as weekly church attenders. That number is 29% today. Elders and boomers saw more than a 12% decrease in church attendance over the last 10 years. A fascinating note since historically it has become a commonplace assumption that one grows more religious as they age. Research firm Gallup conducted a similar survey in 2020 and found that, quote, 47% of Americans said they belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, down from 50% in 2018 and 70% In 1999, it's the first time in Gallup's history that that number has been below 50%. U.S. church membership was 73% when Gallup first measured it in 1937, a number that remained steady for almost six decades before rapidly declining over the last two. And on and on and on we could go, but the fact
1: remains, my friends, the church as we know it is dying. And so, I beg of us to heed this. Something must change.
2: Something must change. Pretty programs and pithy statements aren't drawing people like they once did. Aligning church as a product to consume and a consumeristic-driven society has had its merits. The people have come. But if the COVID-19 pandemic taught us anything, it's that those pretty programs and pithy statements sure do attract, but they do not captivate. And they don't keep Leveraging church platforms for increased pastoral visibility, power, and fame has had its moment too, until corrupt character caused the very same news outlets, tabloids, and entertainers who catapulted those pastors to fame in the first place, to distance, to degrade, and to disown these so-called celebrity pastors and their celebrity God in front of the masses. And in the wake of all of this lies a civilization that, majority speaking, finds themselves disillusioned and disenfranchised with with organized religion. Our society has been gripped by religious institutional skepticism and cynicism. Buzzwords like deconstruction and exvangelical have made waves via social media the last couple of years. Merriam-Webster's word of the year in 2022? Gaslighting gaslighting, as in the term that permeated popular podcasts like Christianity Today's The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, or best-selling books like Caitlin Beattie's Celebrities for Jesus and Scott McKnight and Laura
1: Beringer's A Church Called Tove. Something must change. Something must change. And so I ask you, what if the world is desperate for a compelling counterculture? What if the world is
2: desperate for a compelling counterculture? What if the world is primed and ready for a generational spiritual awakening to take place in our midst? But what if an authentic awakening can and will only come through a people marked by humble, quiet,
1: faithful, faith-filled obedience to Jesus of Nazareth? When we began dreaming about what the Holy Spirit
2: had laid on our hearts of planting a new community of faith inside the loop of Indianapolis of establishing a particular people in a particular place in this particular moment we were drawn to the person of Jesus the most curious individual to ever live and in that vein of curiosity we began asking each other questions and as the spirit stirred within us we simply posed to one another this question can you imagine can you imagine a place a haven for broken people The people who have given up on church, who have discarded church, who have deconstructed church, who have been abused, shamed, or cast out of the church, who have lost trust in the church, who have no concept of church. Can you imagine a place, a safe haven that allows those people to come and learn how to practice the way of Jesus, a way of life and life to the full? Can you imagine a haven for broken people to learn how to participate in community? in a world being torn apart by the ideological individualism that has unleashed a loneliness epidemic previously unseen, can you imagine creating a space where people can belong, where they're seen, where they're accepted? Can you imagine a haven for broken people that as they learn the way of Jesus Jesus, and as they find belonging, that it stirs something inside of them that compels them to share the good news in the streets? Can you imagine citywide renewal
1: finding its genesis in our sanctuary? In a world drowned out by noise, could quiet kindness cut through?
2: In a world riddled with anxiety, could peaceful attentiveness draw people near? In a world that succumbed to the pressures of success, popularity, fame, and upward mobility, could an invitation to the radical way of Jesus, a way of downward mobility, of selfless offering, and of suffering love,
1: could that way of life be the way that draws the prodigals home? So in Mark chapter 5, we read this series of interactions that Jesus has that encapsulate what we're after.
2: Presence, mercy, healing, faith, renewal, resurrection. Resurrection. And it's here that we find Jesus' invitation to join him in bringing heaven on earth. Now, this is what some scholars refer to as a, quote, Marken sandwich. It's not super intellectual, but I didn't make the term, but it's real, okay? This is a Markin sandwich. Now, here's what you need to know. This is a literary device. Two stories, one enveloped in another. The outside story, Jairus' daughter, meant to intensify the inside story, the bleeding woman. And an inside story, the bleeding woman, meant to permeate the outer story, Jairus' daughter, with meaning and depth. So catch this, two lives, 12 years. One who's dead and becomes alive. And another who's alive and becomes dead before becoming alive again. Again. And we must remember that Mark intentionally wrote these two stories intertwined together. But for a moment, I want to pull each apart. So Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. So Jesus has crossed over the Sea of Galilee from Gentile region or foreign inhabited land back into Jewish territory, the homeland. And word has started to spread about Jesus' miraculous signs and wonders. And people are starting to talk. Could this be the Messiah we've been waiting for? Verse 22. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. So here we have a religious leader who puts all dignity and all ego aside and falls at the feet of Jesus. We have this esteemed civic leader falling at the feet of this backwoods rabbi. What a scene this would be, right? But he's desperate. He's watching the life slip away from his full-of-life potential 12-year-old daughter. The clock is ticking, and he's out of options. And this is where the story breaks. Verse 25, A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So, cultural context, her bleeding condition has made her ceremonially unclean. Her every move had to be carefully calculated in an effort to avoid contact with other people. Should she slip up, she would be
1: publicly condemned. Ah, unclean! Get away, you filthy woman! to which everyone would be aware of her condition and that she was not to be included. This was shameful. This was humiliating. This was life
2: for the bleeding woman. And so in a move of astounding courage, she forces her way into a crowd of people clinging to the thoughts, if I can just touch his robe. Something about this Jesus was so compelling that this marginalized, unclean, unwanted, disrespected woman was
1: willing to risk risk everything to just get a touch. This is incredibly humbling for us as the church.
2: We have to ask ourselves, are marginalized people risking everything, cultural shame, financial strain, social embarrassment, to just get a touch of
1: Jesus in our midst? Is that the type of environment that's being created and fostered here at one church? Verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out
2: from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Do you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to
1: her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now,
2: your view of God will determine how you frame this passage.
1: See, I grew up reading these words from Jesus like this. Who touched me? Who touched me? Annoyance, frustration, intrusion. Intrusion. These words permeated my view of God.
2: And so when I read, who touched me, I winced. Ooh,
1: I hope she doesn't get caught. Ooh, I, I hope she's not in trouble. Right? And perhaps you can relate.
2: But my friends, Jesus' tone here is so much kinder. It's so much gentler. How do we know this? Because Jesus is curious. Curious. 307 questions Jesus asks throughout his ministry. Three he answers. Jesus is curious. And in this case, as it was so many other times, the question here is the answer. There's another story in Mark 10 that hints at this. We don't have time to get into it all today, but Jesus asked a blind man, a blind man,
1: what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? This is an obvious question. Jesus knows
2: what the man wants and needs, but he offers an invitation to this blind man to name
1: his desire. And the blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. And the blind man's faith, Jesus says, heals him. Keep that in mind.
2: A spiritual director, Ruth Haley Barton, so brilliantly writes, Quote, Jesus' interactions with the people he came in contact with during his life on earth make it clear that desire and the willingness to name that desire in Christ's presence is a catalytic element of the spiritual life. So back to Mark 5, Jesus asks, who touched me? And in case we're not tracking, friends, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, knows who touched him. But again, he asks, who touched me? In a throng of people in the most dangerous of situations for a ceremonially unclean woman, Jesus is using a question to say, I see you. I see you. You thought you were too dirty. You thought you were unclean. You thought you were too shame-filled. But I see you. And the disciples, so often like us, right? Right? They say,
1: are you kidding me? Jesus, we're in a crowd of people. Who touched you? Come on, we've got a miracle to get to. Who touched me? I see you. It was St. Augustine who once said, quote, flesh presses, faith touches. Verse 34. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. My friends,
2: could it be that we are in the midst of the most radical modern church decline in Western civilization because we have lost the art and the ability of seeing people? People who look different than us, people who vote different than us, who identify different than us, who worship different than us, who live different than us. And instead of coming to the one place where they, whoever they are in our lives, can come and receive healing through faith,
1: they're cast away because to us, they're unclean. A haven for broken people
2: to practice the way of Jesus, to participate in community and to permeate the world.
1: This is who we long to become. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, Some people came
2: from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said.
1: Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. So
2: Jesus has this intimate encounter with this bleeding woman. And for Jairus, it becomes a death-threatening interruption. Like, can you imagine? The healer has come. He's on his way, and then... He stops. He pauses. He detours. He goes a different direction than the way that you or me wanted him to go. And yet, Jesus, sensing this man's anxiety, simply says, Don't be
1: afraid. Just believe. Astonishing. In a moment like this, a sentence like this almost sounds
2: cruel. Don't be afraid. They just told me my daughter is dead.
1: Just believe. What is there to believe in? This situation is hopeless. I wonder if we, the church, find ourselves in the present position of Jairus. Don't be afraid. Have you seen the
2: news? Have you seen my bank accounts? Have you seen the economy? Have you seen the housing market? Have you seen the statistics? Have you seen the churches? Just believe.
1: What is there to believe in? It all seems hopeless. And for Jesus, this is a moment. This is a crossroads, fork in the road moment presented before us is a choice. Faith or fear? Faith or fear? Because although the two can coexist, one must win out in the end. And Jesus says, what will it be? Faith or fear? Don't be afraid. Just believe. Do you see it? Jairus has just witnessed a woman with a bleeding condition for 12 years,
2: the same amount of time that his daughter has been alive, be healed. How? By
1: faith. And the invitation for all of us is the same. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Faith or fear? Verse 37 He did not let anyone follow him except
2: Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion
1: and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. Again, how insensitive, right?
2: Like the girl is clearly dead and Jesus has the audacity to walk into this household full of mourners and to confidently declare, what are you doing? She's asleep.
1: And the only thing that people can think to do is laugh. The church, as we know it, is dead. Italian sanctuaries
2: turned secular sports bars. New York parishes turned newly minted nightclubs.
1: Midwest congregations turned manic travel sports entourages. And the only thing the people can do is laugh. The church, as we know it, is dead. So they say. But could it be she's not dead? but asleep verse 40 after he put them all out he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child
2: was he took her by the hand and said to her "Talitha kum, which means little girl I say to you get up immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around she was 12 years old you think Mark's trying to make a point At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Our church longs to be a haven for broken people, to practice the way of Jesus, participate in community, and to permeate the world. We want to be a haven for broken people. In a cultural moment where people are leaving the church in droves, they are flocking to community. The sanctuary has just become the Xbox lobby. The prayer room has become the nightclub. The outreach team has become social justice initiatives in the streets. Bible study groups have become deconstruction groups. And listen, the blame belongs in one place, with us. Because since the mid-70s and the rise of the moral majority, we have shifted societal judgment from God's hands to our hands. We have erected a Christian subculture that looks to those on the outside of our walls with disgust. Unclean! Unclean!
1: Get away! You cannot be in here! And after decades of degradation, of humiliation and of hypocrisy, the people on the margins in our society began to listen. And so they left. And here we are. Church, what are we going to do? Are we willing to create a space where all ground is level
2: for sinners, saints, and skeptics alike? Are we willing to get off our religious high horses to simplify our calendars, to sacrifice worldly ambition long enough to slow down and see people? Are we willing to knock down the barriers between us and the marginalized that allows those who have determined life is better, endured agnostic, atheistic, or even nihilistic, to see a countercultural people full of faith, hope, and love? Because people will not be compelled to something they cannot see. We have to extend the invitation. Hey, does life feel unclear to you? Do you feel an unease within you? Are you longing for more? Are you desperately desiring to know why in the world you're here? I'd like to introduce you to Jesus of Nazareth.
1: Yeah, all you have to do is touch his robe. All you have to do is just believe. See, I think so often we create this invisible scorecard for unbelievers that says you must behave
2: correctly to prove you believe correctly. But in the scriptures, it's the exact opposite. For unbelievers, it is always encounter and then exhortation, it's invitation and then challenge. We do well to permeate the ethos of Jesus. Don't be afraid, just
1: believe. But when they believe, what will they see? When they believe, what will
2: they see? We long to be a people who practice the way of Jesus, who incarnate the very peace, the very hope, the very joy, the very love that Jesus himself demonstrated. We long to be a people who love to be with Jesus, and in being with Jesus, we become like Jesus by doing what Jesus did. And Jesus cared for the poor. He gave sight to the blind, freedom to the captives, healing to the sick, and salvation to the lost. And Jesus himself says to us, his followers, his church, John 14:12. very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will
1: do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Church, will we be a people who practice, who apprentice under our rabbi, our teacher, Jesus? Will we be a
2: people who mirror and mimic the presence, the patience, and the power of our
1: Savior, Emmanuel, God with us? But when they believe, where will they go? Our hope is to be a people who participate in community. We long to see a resurgence of gospel hospitality
2: in our city of reclaiming and restaking the table in its rightful place at the center of communal life together. This was a theme that we see all throughout the New Testament and early church, and it's a rhythm that we must recapture if we want to see revival take place in this cultural moment. Pastor and author David E. Fitch sums up the importance of the table well in his book, Faithful Presence. He he writes this, quote, In 1 Corinthians 11, submission manifests itself in a different way. At issue here is that the Corinthians have come to the table caring more about themselves individually than one another. The rich are eating and indulging themselves while the poor are going hungry. Divisions are breaking out among them. Everyone is acting out in the most narcissistic of ways. Individuals are setting themselves above others. Sound familiar? For Paul, this means the Corinthians have not discerned Christ's real presence at the table. They have not submitted themselves to one another. As a result, he says, when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, what you're talking about doing, you're not actually doing it. You say you follow Jesus, but your actions speak louder than your words. He goes on to say, think of how earth-shaking this experience of Christ at the table must have been for early Christians. The very presence of the risen Lord is here at this table. Something so special, even dangerous, is happening when they gather around it. Our health is at stake. It's a matter of life and death. Some are dying when they come to the table, as verses 29 and 30 point out. Yet as each person submits to him, the issues of relationships with one another and to Christ, to authority and how we relate to each other, are opened up. The socioeconomic relationships among us are realigned as we share mutually out of what we have and what we receive. Together, we become financially liable for one another. It is in this space that we submit all of our divisions and personal agendas to Christ's presence. All of this must die. There we sit, tending to one another and to his presence. And an amazing social dynamic breaks forth that can only be described as a new political order subverting all other allegiances. Just as the first tables of the early Christians subverted Rome and Caesar and started a new way of life before the watching world, so this table... Subverts all other politics of American self preservation, accumulation, and
1: individualism. And a profound flourishing in the kingdom results. What a vision. I love
2: that. The table is subversive. It is at the table that we bring all of our goodness and all of our darkness, all of our love and hate, joy and sadness, promise and pain of this life is brought mutually to the table. And around the table, differences in ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender, influence, and vocation are diminished. At the table, we are welcomed. At the table, we collectively partake in Christ's presence. And at the table, through food and drink, through unhurried conversation and through faithful presence, we witness reconciliation
1: and restoration in our midst. Heaven on earth. But when they believe, what will take place? We long to be a people who permeate
2: the world, that as we gather together communally to worship, to hear the word, to pray, and then as we gather in community in circles and neighborhoods all over the city, that such a deep transformation would begin to take place, that unleashed over our city, it would bring such power, such peace, such hope, that renewal would begin to take place, that the inward transformation of our hearts would ready us as liaisons to the lost that in our conversations and our interactions and our sheer presence, love would permeate the world and that we'd begin with our neighbor, the person who literally lives to the left or to the right of us and that eventually that love would permeate the street, and then the cul-de-sac and then the neighborhood and then our city and eventually the world. Personal presence, love for God and for neighbor which unleashes a
1: fervent ambition to see the good news preached to the ends of the earth. My friends, revival is possible. Revival is possible. The same Barna study I referenced
2: earlier noted that, quote, large majorities of Americans say that prayer is something they do on a weekly basis. 69% of people. Think about that. 7 out of 10. Another Barna study study said that nearly 60% of Gen Z answered agree to the following statement. I am more open to God today than I was before the pandemic. People are longing for something transcendent. And could it be that people are hungry for all of the things that Jesus offers? Care, kindness, acceptance, grace, truth, love. But what if that invitation for us as his apprentices, as his followers, is to get out of our comfort zone, to willingly surrender our preferences and to stop reducing people to mere political talking points? What if an invitation exists to move past our fears, past our doubts, and past our security and to grasp faith-filled, a vision for a compelling counterculture that leads to life and life to the full? And what if revival is to be more subversive spark than all-consuming fire? Not on the backs or shoulders of celebrity preachers or sensationalist evangelists, not in the emptied-out auditoriums of scandal-ridden megachurches. Not on the blogs or podcasts of politically polarized and fear-mongering pundits. And not on the Instagram or TikTok accounts of culturally Christian influencers. Perhaps it will be. And if so, great. This isn't an assault on people with online influence. I'm all for that if it's stewarded well. But my point is, what if revival, as Jesus intended it, is coming through everyday, ordinary,
1: mundane, faithful people like you and like me? Talitha kum. Church, get up! The time has come. And so as we close, practically speaking, what does this look like? How do we synthesize such a grand
2: call into practical application that as we leave this place, it gives us clarity regarding what we are to do when we go from here? And so I just want to offer one simple exercise to be practiced at your own risk, okay? I warned you. Stemming from our mission, practicing the way, participating in community, and permeating the world. This week, what would it look like for you to invite the stranger to the table? What would it look like for you to invite the stranger to the table? And by the stranger, for some of you, I simply mean the grocery store clerk you talk to at checkout. I'm talking about the fitness instructor who leads your morning workout class. The neighbor to the left or to the right of you who you know is searching and longing for more. But for others of you in the room, by the stranger, I mean the co-worker who talks nasty about church and religion. The stranger as in the homeless man or woman that you pass every day on your way into work. The stranger as in the estranged child that you haven't talked to in years. The stranger as in the person who sits on the other side of the political aisle than you. The person with the sexual identity that you think is blasphemous. The person that lives in that part of town. The person with that skin color, in that tax bracket, with that past it look like this week to simply offer an invitation to the table to create some space, not to argue not to debate, not to evangelize and not to convert but to simply listen and to commune and to empathize and to seek to understand and to work towards peace because as Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God See, in a day and an age where we have been culturally conditioned to fashion our lives through the lens of comfort and preference, we have begun to take hold of a gospel that is easy. Listen to me, following Jesus isn't easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And for those of us who have grown up in church, we may think of that line from Jesus, Matthew 11:28, 28, right? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Shouldn't it be easy? But that word there is krestos, and it literally means Better. My friends, the way of Jesus is not an easy way. In fact, most statements regarding following Jesus in the gospel center around just how difficult it really is. Why wouldn't it be? It's countercultural. But constantly, Jesus envisions to us a better way of life a way of life and life to the full, and that way of life is available to you and to me today. But can you imagine? Can you imagine if churches all across the city, churches like one church in the sanctuary, began to lead the way in seeing a revival of gospel hospitality in our neighborhoods? If Midwest cliches were transformed into present realities, if people, neighbors, people living to the right and to the left of us were welcomed to the table where they were able to witness heaven on earth, God's family, people of love, joy, peace, and kindness bringing renewal in their midst. It's possible. It's possible, and it doesn't begin with a crusade of tens of thousands in a stadium. As great as that is, revival, historically, has always begun on the margins with a small group of people who are willing to count the cost to faithfully love God and love their neighbor as themselves. And so quickly, maybe you've heard about the Asbury revival that's gripped our country for the last month or so. This supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a particular community in literally the middle of nowhere Kentucky. And man, was it something to behold. I was able to go down for a day with a friend and was able to participate in what the Lord was doing on that campus and it was breathtaking. Literally thousands of people desperately seeking God, people getting healed, beautiful testimonies being shared and a stage full of college students Leading literally the world in faithful, authentic, adorned worship to our Savior, King Jesus. And it just made me long to see our city, our community, our neighborhoods filled with people full of the same desperation to know and be known by Jesus. And then I saw this last week. This is how the Asbury Revival started. With a small group of people who are willing to count the cost of faithfully loving God and loving neighbor as themselves. In a world wrecked by anxiety, peace can be found now. In a world marked by anger and vitriol, kindness can overcome now. In a world filled with darkness, light can shine through now. My friends, the kingdom of heaven is not a reality exclusive to when we die. It is not a world we are simply hoping for. We have been extended an invitation. The kingdom of heaven, as Jesus said, is at hand. It's here now. So my brothers and sisters, may one church in the sanctuary be at the forefront of partnering with God and ushering in his kingdom, of witnessing Indianapolis as it is in heaven now. Because the church, as the world knows it, is dying. But we know better. We know better. Would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, I just pray right now. Holy Spirit, would you move in this room? Two camps of people in this room, God. People who were dead and desired to become alive. People who were once alive and are now dead but desired to become alive again. And Jesus, there is an invitation before all of us. Talitha kum, wake up. And so right now in this moment, if that's you, if you're deciding for the first time or the second time or the hundredth time and you're saying, I want to respond to the call to wake up, to be the follower of Jesus that I know God is calling me to be right now, would you just lift your hand? No one's looking around. Would you just raise your hand and say, Jesus, I need you, I want you, if that's you, Talitha kum, church, get up. Beautiful. Father, I pray for each and every person in this room who had their hand raised, who are accepting an an invitation for maybe the first time or maybe the hundredth time to follow you with all that they are, with all that they have. Jesus, would you meet them right now in this moment, wherever they're at. God, would you speak to us? Would you allow revival? Would you allow the seeds of revival to permeate in this room and to be cast out all over our city through the people of one church in the sanctuary? May this day be a marker moment for our churches that we look back on and say, remember when? Remember when, Jesus? God, we are so grateful for you. May we worship and praise your name, not just in this sanctuary, but as we leave
1: this room throughout this week. We love you and we praise you. It's in your precious and holy name that we pray.